Welcome to this special edition of the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm Lori Boyer. Today's show is brought to you by the United Soybean Board. Who's in the plywood at stores nationwide? You are. That's right, you. Today's soybean farmers, like you, are literally building demand for your soybeans. How? By pooling resources through the soy checkoff. The soy checkoff is working with product manufacturers to replace petroleum oil with your soybean oil. And that brings tangible returns back to your bottom line. See all the ways the soy checkoff is moving soy forward at unitedsoybean.org slash copper. On today's show, I am joined by Penn State Plant Science Department Assistant Professor Charlie White. Charlie, based on your official title, my first question to you today then is, what is the difference between soil fertility and nutrient management? A lot of folks sometimes don't know the difference between soil fertility and nutrient management. They sound the same, but nutrient management is really sort of code word for manure, right? And it's often sort of a bad thing, right? You've got the nutrient management regulations or the you've got to comply with, whereas soil fertility really is kind of focused on fertilizer management. There's situations where we don't have enough nutrients and we need to figure out what's the most economical way to deal with those. Whereas nutrient management with the manure, it's often a case of too many nutrients and it's kind of an environmental problem, the amount of nutrients that we have and how do we best manage in scenarios of excess So that's the focus of my position is to work on both of those ends of the spectrum. You know, folks that don't have enough nutrients and are looking at purchasing inputs, what's the most economic way to do that? And folks that have too much, what's the most environmentally safe way to to utilize those nutrients to protect uh, water quality and air quality and things like that? My degrees are all in soil science. So I have a PhD in soil science. I have a master's degree in soil science. uh, And actually, my bachelor's degree is in geography. Dr. White, how do you define soil health? Soil health is a really fascinating concept and it's broad and diverse. I oftentimes relate it to human health right there because that's something we can all relate to, right? And there's so many different dimensions of human health, but health in general is the ability to function at your optimum, right? Whether that's your human health or whether that's your soil health, it's ability to function at at an optimum level to meet the needs of society, of crop production. So if we're talking soil health, it's to be able to grow healthy, high-yielding crops, but it's also to be able to filter out water, to be able to absorb water, to limit the amount of runoff and limit the amount of erosion. It's to be able to sequester carbon from the atmosphere. It's to reduce greenhouse gas emissions that might come from methane or nitrous oxide creating a habitat for soil microorganisms that are responsible for all of the nutrient cycling that occurs, creating a habitat that's conducive to their survival. So that's kind of the the things that I think about when I think about soil health is the integration of all of those. And lots of times people will kind of divide soil health into three pillars, the physical properties, the biological properties, and the chemical properties. That helps to make things neat and tidy. But it's really important to recognize that those pillars don't exist separately. They're not silos, right? There's lots of interactions, right? So the soil microbiology, the bacteria and the fungi and the plant roots living in the soil, they are what is responsible for creating good physical properties of the soil. So good aggregation and good water infiltration. That's not going to happen without soil biology. 
and the chemical properties of the soil, right? The nutrients, the NPK and secondary nutrients and micronutrients, right? A lot of that availability is regulated by the biological activity of the soil. And so you're not going to have good chemical composition and chemical nutrient availability if you don't have good biology. And you're not going to have good biology if they don't have a good aerated environment and the right amount of moisture. That's not going to happen without physical properties, good physical structure and drainage and things like that. So it's all really interrelated. So even though we can create these categories of physical, biological, and chemical, we need to understand that they don't really exist separately from each other. They're all part of a, you know, a living complex ecosystem and they relate to each other. So in addition to the things that you just explained, Dr. White, what makes up soil health? You know, we have those three pillars of physical, chemical, and biological. And some of the usefulness of those pillars is that those give us categories of things we can measure, right? So we can measure the biological activity of the soil. We can do that in many different ways. We can take a soil sample into the laboratory and incubate it in a jar for 24 hours or 72 hours or 96 hours and see how much uh, respiration occurs. That's basically the microbes breathing, living and breathing into the atmosphere. They respire carbon dioxide into the atmosphere so we can see how much carbon dioxide is produced. And that's an indication of the microbial activity of the soil. There's ways to measure the microbial biomass. There's ways to measure the diversity you know, looking at the DNA or looking at the cell wall components of the microbes, we can identify how much bacteria, how much fungi, what types of bacteria, what functions are those bacteria providing. So those are some sort of more, I guess, more detailed advanced metrics of of soil health. On the physical side, we can look at aggregate stability. So we take dried soil aggregates and we re-wet them and sort of agitate them in some water and see how much does that aggregate fall apart versus how much does it stay intact? You know, there's even things you can observe in the field, right? So aggregate stability, looking at, do you have runoff? Do you see rills in your field? Um, do you see when the when water runs off of your field, is it crystal clear or is it cloudy with sediment, right? That's a great indication in the field, just being able to observe what's happening there, of whether you have good aggregate stability. We can look at compaction. So there's a there's a tool that, that can push into the ground. It's sort of a, a rod with a cone on the end of it, and it's got a handle with the strain gauge, and you push that in, and that strain gauge shows you how much pressure needs to be exerted to push through the soil. And that kind of simulates what a root would be experiencing as it's pushing through the soil. And if that pressure gets too high, it's an indication that you've got compaction. And you can see is that compaction on the surface Or is it in the subsurface and what zone is going to be a limiting restrictive layer to root growth? Um, So those are some of the physical properties that we can measure. Dr. White, I know that soil fertility actually branched off of soil testing for soil health. So let's talk about the chemical properties of soil health. We measure for phosphorus and potassium, and we measure pH, and we look at calcium, and we look at the micronutrients and things like that. So making sure that your traditional soil tests are all kind of in the optimum range for pH and, and the other nutrients. We've talked overall about what soil health is and what comprises soil health. Now the question is, how do we manage soil health? Yeah, so there's some basic principles that are generally understood to help improve 
soil health. And one of those principles is trying to always have a living crop growing. So reducing as much as possible your fallow periods. So a lot of farmers are in annual crop rotations where during the wintertime, they might not have something growing. And so that's where cover cropping comes in and trying to have a living root system in the soil at all times, trying to have a canopy cover, a green canopy cover on the soil surface that will protect against erosion and that will continue to photosynthesize even, you know, in the wintertime and late fall and early spring, trying to capture some of that solar radiation that would otherwise be wasted. With a plant there, you can capture that solar energy, the plant converts it into carbon, and the root system will shuttle that carbon into the soil where it can be turned into uh, long-term soil organic matter, where it can be a food for the microbes to keep them alive. So cover cropping in the wintertime or integrating in perennials into the system. So if you've got a farming system where you can utilize hay crops, that can be a really valuable part of the system. And the nice thing about perennials is uh, once you've got it established, you don't really have to do any more you know, seeding or anything like that, as well as you, as long as you can maintain a good stand through you know, good cutting management and maintaining fertility and things like that. You know, eventually you'll probably have to rotate into something else or renovate the stand. But perennials are a great way to develop a really deep root system and build a lot of organic matter into the soil and help build aggregate stability. Dr. White, I've also heard that reduced till is a good way to achieve soil health goals. The more that you can move towards continuous no-tillage, I think the better. And if you can't go completely to continuous no-till, and you know there's a lot of organic farmers that can't go complete no-till because one of the parts of the no-till system is managing weeds in a continuous long-term no-till system. You tend to have to use herbicides to manage those weeds. So it can be really challenging for organic farmers, but there's still ways for organic farmers to try and reduce tillage as much as possible throughout the rotation. A great way to do that is to integrate a perennial into the system, like I was mentioning earlier. But if the less tillage you can do, the less soil disturbance there is, a particular type of soil organism called mycorrhizal fungi that are really one of the most important soil microbial groups in the soil. And mycorrhizal fungi help to build aggregate stability. They help to acquire nutrients and they form a symbiotic relationship with plant roots. But one of the things that mycorrhizal fungi don't like is soil disturbance. They build this network of mycelium through the soil. And when you come through with a plow and you mix all of that up, you're disrupting their biomass. You're basically ripping their arms and their legs off, right? And they have to regrow their biomass after an event like that. It takes a lot of energy to do that. And the way that those mycorrhizal fungi get their energy is by associating with the plant root. So if you don't have a cover crop planted and you do tillage and you destroy their biomass, rip their arms and legs off and leave them with no source of energy to repair their biomass, they're going to go away, right? Over time, their populations are going to dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. And then you're left without that really important microbial group in the soil. So, you know, reducing that soil disturbance is helpful. Other aspects of no-tillage is you get a nice layer of residue on the soil surface. And some farmers refer to that as the armor on the surface of the soil to help 
intercept raindrops and slow down their velocity so that they're not causing a lot of soil erosion. Earthworms are another really important soil organism that doesn't really appreciate tillage, right? They spend a lot of time building these earthworm burrows that can go three, four, five feet deep into the soil. And they move up and down through those burrows. They come up at night and pull crop residue off the soil surface and get it buried. You know, imagine coming through with a plow and disrupting all of those earthworm burrows, right? They're going to have to rebuild those burrows. And if they don't have crop residue on the soil surface to come up and and get to eat, uh, you know, it's not going to be a great environment for them to be living in. And over time, their populations will go away. So, you know, I think cover cropping and reducing tillage as much as possible are some of the key aspects of building soil health. I'd also throw in there trying to have a diverse crop rotation. And again, that kind of goes back to the microbes, right? We can think about ourselves, right? If we just ate one thing over and over and over again uh, for many years, we wouldn't really be healthy, right? We need diverse diets and so do the soil microbes, right? So having a diverse crop rotation helps with that. It also helps to break up disease cycles that might be occurring in the soil. It can help break up pest cycles. It allows you to rotate herbicide chemistries and things like that. Dr. White, can you compare and contrast soil health versus regenerative soil practices and strategies? Well, I would say regenerative agriculture is a little bit broader than soil health, but soil health is one of the key parts of a regenerative agricultural system. And a lot of times people use them interchangeably. So you kind of have to maybe have a conversation if someone throws around the word regenerative agriculture and you're wondering, well, do they just mean soil health or do they mean more? I just want to ask some follow-up questions or have a conversation about what they mean. To me, they're not exactly the same thing. Regenerative agriculture is a little bit broader and soil health is a really important core component of that regenerative agriculture. When we have a conversation about it, say, well, what is it that you're trying to regenerate with regenerative agriculture? And that might help to see where people are coming from. But a lot of times, one of the things they are trying to regenerate is the soil health. They're trying to build back the organic matter levels. They're trying to build back the aggregate stability, trying to build back the microbial community. That's part of the framework of of, uh, regeneration. But regenerative agriculture could be broader than that, right? Part of regenerative agriculture could be regenerating communities of people, regenerating an agricultural economy that might be more diversified than what it is, right? So maybe bringing animals back into the system. Maybe part of regenerative agriculture is developing a more localized processing infrastructure so that farmers have markets for more diverse products and they can get out of that corn soybean rotation. Part of regenerative agriculture might be bringing animals back into the the operation. You know, animals can play a really valuable role in an integrated system, especially ruminants, right? Ruminants allow you to utilize hay and forage crops. That gives you the opportunity to bring perennials back into the rotation. They're producing manure, right, which you can spread mechanically, or if you can get some kind of grazing system where the animals are rotating through your fields, then the animals are doing the spreading for you. And that manure, it's a great source of chemical nutrients, but it's a great source of organic matter that's going to feed that food web. Regenerative agriculture might also be referring to regenerating a diverse insect population, right? So that you're getting predator insects back in to do natural control. So you're not as reliant on insecticides. So I think, you know, soil health is an important part of the regenerative agriculture, but I I see regenerative agriculture as 
a little bit broader than just the soils. Dr. White, going back to measuring soil health, because you did talk about this a little bit already, is there anything else that you would suggest when it comes to measuring it? Yeah, one thing I'll add on measuring soil health um, is that there's a few ways to go about that. There are several labs across the country that offer soil health testing services, and they will run a suite of measurements on soil samples to measure all sorts of these different indicators that I described, like aggregate stability, soil respiration. Um, They might look at the microbial diversity. They might look at different fractions of carbon and organic matter, active carbon or labile nitrogen, you know, things like that. Those tests are nice. They provide a lot of information, but they're also quite expensive. And so it's difficult, you know, for me to recommend to farmers that, yeah, you should go out and have all of your fields get a soil health test that costs $150 and do that every three years like you do for your fertility samples that only cost $10 to analyze, right? It's hard just because of the cost. It's hard to make that kind of recommendation. I wouldn't recommend those on a routine basis. What I do recommend on a routine basis is measuring organic matter. Measuring organic matter is kind of like to relate it to human health. It's kind of like when you go to the doctor right? Every time you go to the doctor, they measure your blood pressure and they measure your pulse. That's a very basic measurement that's quick to do, and it can be very informative. And measuring organic matter is kind of like taking the pulse, taking the blood pressure of the soil. And if you've got really high organic matter, there's a great chance that you've got a healthy, high-functioning soil. And if you've got low organic matter, then that's an indication that you might have room for improvement. Now, one of the things to recognize about that is that there isn't sort of a universal scale of organic matter. And so you kind of need to look locally, right? Colder climates tend to have higher organic matter levels. Soils that evolved out of prairie regions of of the United States and the Midwest are going to have a naturally higher organic matter level soil. Southeast, where it's hot and humid, are going to have fairly low organic matter levels. Really dry, arid regions might also have fairly low organic matter levels. They might actually have high organic matter levels too. If it's sort of a Mediterranean climate where you get sort of a cool, wet part of the year that plants can grow vigorously, but then you get a dry summer and the microbes kind of shut down and don't really decompose all of that growth, you can actually have higher organic matter levels in that kind of scenario. Are there differences in the way that labs do the soil testing? The way organic matter is usually measured in a lab is they take your soil sample and they put it in a furnace at a very high temperature and they burn off the organic matter and they measure the amount of weight that's lost during that burning process. They measure it before and after the burning and the amount of weight that's lost is your, what they call the percent loss on ignition. Now, different labs might heat the soil at different temperatures. They might heat it for different amounts of time and that can create differences in the amount of organic matter that's burned off. So that's important to recognize. And then some labs percent report the raw percent loss on ignition. If you see a soil test report with percent LOI on it, that stands for loss on ignition. That means they're just taking that raw weight loss. Other labs report what they call the percent organic matter. So if you see percent OM, there's a very good chance that that lab has taken the loss on ignition method and they've done a little bit of a conversion factor to make it line up with a historical method of organic matter measurement called the Walkley-Black method, which used a lot of toxic chemicals and was phased out several decades ago. But to provide sort of continuity with that old method, the labs have this adjustment factor to convert loss on ignition to percent organic matter. 
and it actually makes the value come down about one percentage point. So that's another thing to sort of keep in mind when you get these soil test report back, like, and you're comparing, you know, with different farms, or even if you've switched labs and you're comparing reports from 10 years ago to a new lab that you're using today. Let's talk now about underground roots and how soil health relates to root health. Roots and soil health go hand in hand, and you really can't have one without the other. So roots are an incredibly important part of building soil health. And then once you have healthy soil, that's going to help root systems be able to grow and thrive. So roots themselves are this fibrous network that helps to pull soil particles together and create aggregate stability. Roots are always exuding carbon into the soil. So some of the photosynthesis that's occurring above ground in the leaves that's creating sugars that the plant can use to grow and it'll grow its above ground biomass. It'll fill, you know, the grain and everything on the crop, but it's also sending some of that carbon, some of those sugars down to the roots. And then those roots are exuding some of that carbon out into the soil. Now, why would a plant take that hard earned carbon and just let it out into the soil? Well, it's doing that to feed the microbes in the soil, because the plant needs those microbes living in the rhizosphere. The rhizosphere is the area right around the root system. It's like the millimeter of soil right around the root, and it's got a much larger and more diverse microbial population in the rhizosphere than in bulk soil. So the root is kind of stimulating the microbial activity by feeding the microbes these sugars. And then those microbes in turn are starting to release nutrients from the soil. They're breaking down organic matter and releasing nitrogen and phosphorus. Those microbes are releasing organic acids into the soil that help to solubilize micronutrients and solubilize phosphorus. Those roots in the rhizosphere, they're outcompeting pathogenic organisms, right? They might be outcompeting nematodes or they might be outcompeting some of the root-borne diseases and suppressing those diseases in the rhizosphere. And then those soil microbes are also themselves releasing sticky material into the soil and creating better aggregate stability, creates good habitat for the microbes, also good habitat for the roots. I mentioned the mycorrhizal fungi and mycorrhizal fungi, they colonize the plant roots. And inside the plant roots is the site where the mycorrhizal fungi and the roots exchange nutrients and energy with each other. The plant will give the mycorrhizal fungi energy the mycorrhizal fungi acts like an extension of the plant's root system. It goes out and further explores the soil and finds really immobile nutrients like phosphorus or zinc. It grabs that from further out in the soil and it shuttles it back through its mycelium to the plant root and then exchanges that phosphorus and helps the plant acquire more nutrients. So you've got that rich rhizosphere microbial activity going on. You've got the mycorrhizal associations um, that's helping to build good aggregate stability. That aggregate stability allows for good water infiltration so that when it rains, we get moisture, get that rainfall being absorbed into the soil and being held like a sponge. But it's also really important for soils to be able to drain well, right? There's a lot of soils that have poor drainage and ha actually have too much water, standing water there. And we don't want that to happen because then the soils go anaerobic and the roots need oxygen to survive. Dr. White, I would also guess that soil drainage is important when it comes to managing soil health. We want to have that good aggregate stability to create actually large pores in the soil called macropores, which allow the water to drain out and re-aerate the soil. So we want sort of a nice balance. 
we want the pores in the soil to be filled with about 50% water and 50% air to sort of have an optimum functioning soil. So soil health allows you to have that good physical structure to have both water holding capacity, but, but also aeration, and that really helps the roots. You want your roots to be able to go deep into the soil, right? In the middle of the summertime, a lot of the moisture is used up at the surface, and what's stored is deep in the soil. We want our roots to be able to go as deep as possible into the soil to get that water. There might be nutrients left over from previous years. Nitrogen and sulfur are very leachable nutrients, and so they might be three feet, four feet deep down into the soil. We want our roots to be able to get down that deep. But if you have a compacted layer, if you're doing a lot of tillage and moldboard plowing and you have a compacted layer right below that plow zone that roots can't get through, you're limiting your rooted potential to six or eight inches deep, right? You're not getting down to that water. You're not getting down into that nutrients. It might be three or four feet deep. And that being said, why are cover crops then a good option? Cover crops, right? Some people might be familiar with forage radishes, right? There's a lot of different names for forage radishes. There's tillage radishes. There's, you know, other varieties of of radish. They're all kind of the same species and variety of radish in general, but they've got very deep tap roots that can drill through compacted soil in the wintertime when that soil is looser. And then they leave those channels behind and researchers have been able to trace underground, they have cameras that go down in tubes and they see that the roots of the next crop are following those same root channels that the forage radish created the season before. So, you know, that's another way that sort of cover crops help to build soil health by loosening the compaction and creating these channels that new crops can be able to go through. Dr. White, when it comes to using amendments or biologicals, what are your thoughts on that? Do they actually enhance soil health? Yeah, so there's a wide variety of soil amendments and biological products out there. And I think it's important to become familiar with what is in each of those amendments. Like what is the product claimed to have in it? How is that microbe going to be functioning in the soil? Is it providing a service or a function that you're currently missing? You know, a lot of the microbial functioning already exists in the soil. It just needs to be brought to life and brought to its optimum optimum functioning by the things that we've been talking about, you know, diverse rotations, reducing tillage, cover crops. That is sort of the most natural way to bring your soils back to life. And you can buy amendments and you can put those amendments out there, but unless they're a very specific strain that has a very specific functioning, it's just sort of general adding bacteria and fungi. You know, you've got a lot of those microbes already out there in your soil. They just need to be brought to life through good soil health practices. So I I don't think you need to kickstart things by adding that necessarily. You know, I would say if you want to kickstart a system, right, a great way to do that is with something like manure or compost, right? Think about all the microbes that have been cultivated in that compost pile. Think about all the microbes that have been cultivated in the rumen of a cow or something like that. That's a great way to sort of kickstart the microbial diversity is by using composts and manures. You can have a healthy soil without all of those amendments. And I think the healthier your soil becomes, probably the less important those amendments are because you've cultivated that diversity already. Very good points. Thank you. Dr. White, when you are planning for soil health, how far ahead should we be thinking about it? 
I think you need for soil health, you need to have short term, medium term and long term perspectives, short term perspectives. You want to make sure you're not trafficking a field when it's too wet after a big rainstorm. And that can be challenging to do, right? If, if you're hauling manure, if you're chopping silage or something like that, sometimes you got a very narrow window and it's a wet time of the year, but you need to be thinking like, okay, on the day-to-day basis, am I trafficking my field when it's too wet and is it causing compaction, right? That's an example of sort of a short-term, you'd be paying attention to things in the short-term. Planning a year out, you want to be thinking, what's my crop rotation? What window do I have to get a cover crop planted? Do I have that seed ordered, right? With the big interest in cover cropping the last few years, it can be hard to get cover crop seed sometimes, right? And there's a lot of farmers that have kind of been turned off by the prices of cover crop seed as they've increased in years because of demand and low supply, but they want to do the cover cropping. So they start building in, they grow their own cover crop seed right? They might take, if they're planting a hundred acres or big farm, thousand acres of cover crop seed, right? Cereal rye seed. You might kill most of that off in the spring and plant your next summer annual, but you might say, take a couple acres, two acres, three acres, five acres, whatever you need and let that cover crop go to seed, right? Harvest that cereal rye, harvest that triticale, um, harvest that wheat, and use that as seed for your next cover crop, right? So thinking about what's going to be your system for getting cover crop seed, what's going to be your crop rotation so that you have an appropriate window to plant that cover crop, right? A lot of times folks that aren't in a cover cropping mindset, they're maximizing the amount of time for their annual crops, right? They grow long season hybrids uh, as much as they, they can. It doesn't leave a lot of time to get a cover crop established, right? the cover crop adopters, what they're finding is that oftentimes the yields are just as good, if not just a little bit worse with the shorter season hybrids. But what that gives them is an an extra two weeks maybe to get a cover crop planted in the fall, right? And then that cover crop allows them to build soil health. And then over time, that healthier soil leads them to higher crop yields. So maybe like the little bit of yield loss that they might take on a shorter season variety offset by their increase in soil health and their overall increase in yield potential on their site. So I think you've got to be thinking ahead to what's your rotation and your planting windows for the cover crop. You know, long-term, you've got to be thinking about, is there an opportunity to have a perennial in the system? Is there an opportunity to have a more diverse crop rotation? If I'm going to diversify my crop rotation, what's that market going to be? How do I, how do I find the buyers for you know, crops that might be in a more diverse rotation. Do I want to bring animals back onto the farm? If so, what do I need in infrastructure for bringing those animals? So I think those are some of like the longer term things that should be in your planning process, right? Equipment, right? If I'm going to be upgrading equipment, I want to make sure that maybe I can get a good no-till planter, right? If I'm upgrading my combine, maybe get the right kind of header to be able to harvest small grains so I can grow my own cover crop seed. If I'm redoing grain bins, right, get another grain bin for that new crop I'm going to have in the rotation. So, you know, thinking about some of the capital expenses and sort of business planning that might be required is important to do on a long-term horizon as well. What are common mistakes that people make when they're trying to manage their soil health and achieve crop nutrition? 
Mm, common mistakes. Well, I mentioned the one that I see often as going overboard with the compost or manure applications, right? And just recognizing that that's a great source of organic matter, but it's also really high in nutrients. And we don't want to over fertilize the soil and create concerns of like phosphorus losses or nitrogen losses or high salt buildup. So, you know, using them judiciously, I think is important. I think, you know, bringing animals back onto the farm is a good idea, but that creates additional layers of management. And so are you ready to have a rotational grazing system, right? I wouldn't want to see a farm bring animals back on back onto the farm, but then have them just sort of continuously grazing in a pasture and not rotating them through and then overgrazing that pasture or undergrazing the pasture. If you're going to bring animals back, are you prepared to manage them in the right way? If you overgraze a field or or graze them when it's wet and cause compaction, you know, you're not helping your soil health any there. I would say another challenge that I see with a lot of farms when they go to no-till is one of the challenges about no-till is by not incorporating things into the soil, by just leaving them on the soil surface for a lot of nutrients, that's actually not the best strategy. So if you broadcast urea onto the soil surface, a lot of that urea is going to volatilize into the atmosphere. If you broadcast manure onto the soil surface without incorporation, again, a lot of the ammonia is going to volatilize from that manure. And so when we shift to no-till, we need to think about how are we going to shift our management of other nutrients so that we don't create environmental problems. Phosphorus is another one where leaving phosphorus on the soil surface, whether that's fertilizer, you know, MAP or DAP broadcast on the soil surface, or whether that's manure broadcast on the soil surface, that leaves it very prone to runoff. And it also doesn't really get it into the soil where the crop roots are going to be able to access it. Um, So we want to think about with those nutrients, are we placing them in a way into the soil where they're protected against environmental losses and they're there where the roots are going to be able to access them? I think sometimes that's something that no-tillers forget about Uh, doing. And so uh, manure with liquid manures, you can do manure injection and get that ammonia conserved by injecting it, get that phosphorus off the soil surface by injecting it. Fertilizers, you can use more of your phosphorus fertilizer as a starter or incorporated with the planter next to the seed, or you could do some deep banding with low disturbance. I hesitate to call it strip till because I don't really want to be thinking about it as strip till, but like deep placement of nutrients with sort of a shallow disc incorporation type system could be beneficial for phosphorus and nitrogen fertilizers as well to prevent volatilization. So I think those are some mistakes. I think trying to go in again on the no-till side, trying to convert to no-till without having the right equipment in place, having the right planters, having the right residue managers and cleaners on the planter can be a recipe for disaster getting into cover cropping without having a solid plan of how you're going to kill it, you know, whether you're going to kill it early or whether you're going to let it grow tall and plant green or whether you're going to plant green when it's small. There's so many different ways to manage a cover crop, having a plan for that. And I think making sure that you've got a community of other farmers that are there to help you out and answer questions. And, you know, the extension service, in your area can also be a great resource, but I think there's no substitute for farm to farmer learning, right? Talking to other farmers that are out there on the ground every day and that have been successful at building soil health and have become successful cover croppers and successful no-tillers. You're going to learn so many little details 
from that community of people. And so searching them out and becoming part of that community. In Pennsylvania, we have a great group called Pennsylvania No-Till Alliance, which is this farmer-to-farmer peer network group of successful no-tillers. And they've been one of the strongest advocates for soil health in Pennsylvania. And they hold summer field days. They have farmer-to-farmer meetings. They have twilight meetings. They have peer mentoring where you can just call up one of their board members and say, hey, I'm new to this. I need some help. I don't want to fail. <laughs> you know, what can you tell me? And so finding out those communities, trying to go it alone could be a recipe for disaster. There's so much knowledge that has been generated within the soil health communities already that not tapping into those would be a big mistake. Charlie, thank you so much for joining me. Once again, my guest here today has been Penn State Plant Science Department Assistant Professor Charlie White with a focus on soil fertility and nutrient management. I'm Lori Boyer, and this episode of the Successful Farming Podcast has been brought to you by the United Soybean Board.